I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today in this pandemic environment is Dr. Bill Parham, a professor at Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Parham's background combines the interplay between sports psychology, multicultural diversity, and health psychology. This expertise has allowed him to achieve breakthroughs with athletes across all the major professional sports leagues and most recently has been named the director of the Mental Health and Wellness Program for the National Basketball Association. I welcome Dr. Bill Parham. Bill, it's been 30 years since you and I first got to meet one another in 1990. Well, it doesn't seem it's been that long, but boy, I guess it has been and time sure flies. When we met, I mean, I was going through a personal crisis. I'd been fired twice. My dad died. I'd gone through a divorce and was in a bad relationship. So I was not in a good, (laughs) my mental state was not good. You helped get me through it and I will be ever indebted uh, for your help. Well, you're very kind to say that, but I also think that 30 years and you, you and I are talking now, it's really a testament to you and your spirit and you don't give up and you're persistent. Thank you for whatever I did uh, to spur that along, but I want to give it back to you. I mean, you really have maintained a sense of forward movement, belief in yourself, uh, not letting obstacles get in your way, having a North Star goal, and I think collectively those things have brought you to where you are today, so kudos to you. Thank you. Also, when I started to get into business, we got involved working in business as well. Uh, I was running an assessment company, and you and a number of psychologists joined the board. I mean, we had the kind of a who's who of, yeah. uh, of psychologists, but we also dealt with diversity. And yeah. based on your background in social uh, ecology, the diversity issue was something in the early 90s that wasn't being dealt with the way it is today. And we put on a seminar for PNC, and you had a special way of putting names on backs. And and so talk a little bit about what that was like and what you're trying to get out of that. Well, in those early days, that was really one of the exercises that we had. And you're right, diversity was not really a a fun topic to talk about. People really avoided it. And I think it has been consistent with an observation I've made all of these years is that America really hasn't failed at addressing issues of diversity, racism, social inequities. They really have succeeded at not addressing these issues. And so 30 years ago, what I've just said was even more true. And when you really look at the systemic structures along many dimensions, uh, economics, employment, housing, education, access to healthcare, mental health care and physical health care, et cetera, uh, the data are just alarmingly, exceedingly clear that there are the haves and the haves nots. 
America has promoted values, but what they have subtextually promoted is value. What is your worth? What is your measure? And that belief in subtext has really added to the uh, escalation and maintenance of people who have, people who have, don't have, and somewhere in the middle. So back in those days, getting back to this um, particular exercise, uh, it was an attempt to pull out in a fresh raw way immediate reactions that people had to the label. So you're right, on the back of everybody's, uh, on their back was a label. May have said anything from bigot to I'm weight challenged, to I abuse my kids, uh, to all sorts of things. There's probably about 75 of those different labels. And the idea was for the group who was assembled to walk up to each other, look at their back, and just have a conversation. And what really comes up is exactly what we know and predicted to come up. A, a lot of reactions and implicit bias, some very direct bias based on the labels. And so those exercises were really used as a trigger for conversation. So it was really a stimulus exercise, one of many, to get people talking. And I think that that dialogue has always been difficult, always been tough, always been necessary. And I think we're beginning to have more of that today based on a lot that's going on we'll probably talk about later. But I think what's different today than yesterday is that there is a sort of, I can check it off my list if we have a conversation about it. There wasn't much tangible evidence of doing anything different. In fact, in those days, one of the recommendations that I put forth for the bank we were talking about was to why not have a check. Back in those days, we had checkbooks with African-American art or images of or reflections of uh, African-Americans on the checks. Really concretely and tangible ways. Market your product as a bank to people letting them know that they matter and we see them. Uh, but there's been a pronounced uh, need to have everybody invisible and, and not really attend to them. So anyway, it's a longstanding issue. It continues to be. And with the lynching of uh, lynching by me of George Floyd, that really erupted the conversation differently, I, I hope. You migrated into sports. More than an athlete, a big fan. How did you get into, into sports and using your background in relevant as it is with um, with athletics? Well, the truth of the matter, we all were uh, my brothers, my neighborhood, my buddies, my peers. We never were not doing athletics at some level. And while we never, I never played collegiate pro sports, uh, I still today play pickup basketball once or twice a week, still do martial arts two or three times a week, have always played basketball, tennis, some sort of sport. That sport and movement and the beauty of all that was always intriguing. I certainly was a devotee of basketball specifically, uh, but also football. Love tennis, love golf. Golf is sort of the ultimate sport because it's not a game you can 
win. It can only be played. And so that's the ultimate lure. I really also felt blessed, drawn to, called to, if you will, uh, the profession of psychology. I'm very person-oriented, feel I have some good relational capital, feel gifted with insights and perspectives that I think can serve as a portal for others in need to really see through. When I became a psychologist, licensed and ready to go, uh, my first uh, full-time position was at UCLA. And I was the, at the time, uh, the only African-American psychologist on the entire campus delivering mental health services to the entire UCLA community. And the only one, obviously, then with the athletic department. That led to a number of referrals from the athletic department, mostly from the academic advisors who had concerns about a lot of the kids and uh, athletes at the time, a high proportion of African-Americans who were not doing well academically. Make a long story short, I began to see them, began to build a relationship, and began to really understand differently what their struggles were like. Make a long story short, became an official liaison with them in 19... Oh, I don't know, 83 or 84. Back in those days, that's when the NCAA first came online with their official drug and alcohol testing. And so I and a colleague of mine gave the first series of alcohol and education workshops to the athletic department. By the time I left UCLA in 2006, we had developed and were actively implementing seven programs, uh, mostly to athletes but also as a coaches, we had coaches education program. So where I'm going with this, to get back to your question, I, I've always felt I had a gift, a talent. Psychology was the, the arena in which I could fully express that. Marrying that with athletics, really wanting people to see the person before the performer. Back in those days, athletes were commodities, somebody who they could market, sell tickets, bring in revenue. And that's still programmatically and problematic today. What you saw on the field, on the court, were people who had real struggles. And even then, some of the stories I heard and the depth of the pain, trauma that a lot of these young men were carrying, to be as gifted and show genius-level athletic ability really piqued my curiosity. Because even then, 30 years ago, I began saying, God, if this guy can run the football, hoop, play golf, play tennis, Carrying around this sort of luggage, baggage, I can't imagine if we had a space to let some of that go, how their talents would exponentially rise. So that was just sort of a vague concept then, but now in my role as a director of the Mental Health and Wellness Program for the National Basketball Players Association, the person before the performer is our exact mantra. The same thing has happened only at a larger level. My relationship, I'm currently um, also a uh, member of the task force, mental health, mental health and wellness task force for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And that mantra, I go there with that mantra as well. We're talking about people who really are struggling. And yeah, it's important to focus, pay attention, win a gold medal maybe. But the question always is, at what cost? And there's a lot of evidence I mean, abundant evidence, so much that people are trying to squash it, that people don't really care about the person first. They care about their performance and what adulation they can bring to America, to a team, to a university. People don't want to talk about it, but when you look at the evidence, there's no way to draw anything but that conclusion. 
I believe if you look at, there's a recent show that came on HBO, and I think it was called The Price of Gold, something like that. It's absolutely incredible in terms of its content, and it's nothing new. And that thing that you will see in that movie has been going on since for the history of sports. Are there certain buckets that the issues revolve around when you when you cluster your athletes together? Whether it's uh, and what factor does race play in it as opposed to the general issues that are individuals that are coping with? Well, there are a lot of clusters. I mean, there's certainly when you look at anxieties, depressions, post-traumatic stress, trauma, anxieties, as I think I mentioned, those are sort of what might be considered typical mental health challenges. But anxieties, depressions, post-traumatic stress, trauma, from little kids behaving badly in classrooms to athletes who seem to have what we call meltdowns or when they start acting different. All of those are symptoms of a larger problem. When you look at somebody who's anxious all the time, when you're somebody who's chronically depressed, when you look at somebody who's always making decisions to engage in sort of behavior that deviates from the norm, knowingly doing so, when you see people in general, men and women, those deviations, those quote-unquote bad behaviors, those quote-unquote out-of-line behaviors are clearly, unmistakably problematic. Problematic being defined as if somebody doesn't intervene, it's going to escalate into a bigger issue. But while these issues and expressions of distress may be problematic, they are absolutely never the problem. It's akin to a smoke detector in your home. If your smoke detector right now went off and started making noise, I doubt that you would go get a step stool, pull it down from the ceiling, and go get the smoke detector fixed. The fact that it went off doesn't suggest that it's broken. It suggests that it's working. And it's alerting you to pay attention that there may be a small issue, may be a big problem. In the same way, anxieties, depressions, all these things I mentioned are symptoms, not the issue. And I say that because a lot of times when persons go for help, anxiety, for example, a common intervention is medication. A common intervention is teaching them how to relax. A common intervention is teaching them how to think differently. A common intervention is really assessing their diet and the degree to which that's contributing to what you are seeing. All of those things are treating symptoms. So yeah, you can take a pill and all of a sudden you get a a headache is gone, or your nerves are less jittery and you're more calm. You start thinking and taking a deep breath and have some relief. But until you get at the core of what's really driving all of this, you're going to be hooked to symptom relief interventions the rest of your life. What are the chances of that being rectified and, and being able to relief, release the anxiety, the stress, the trauma? It's guaranteed if somebody were to surrender to a process where they can get to the core, that they would, in fact, find the release and the relief that they're searching. It does take time. It takes risk. It takes vulnerability. It takes a willingness to reconcile the past. It may involve forgiveness. There's a lot involved 
and letting that stuff go. More importantly, though, we as both men and women have grown up in a world, in a society where it's not okay to talk about our issues. You don't think that's changed at all? I'll get to that in a minute, but the short answer is no. I think that people, both men and women, have not only been told not to uh, say what they got to say, not speak their truth, not air the family linen, but they've been punished for doing so. It's gotten so that, and to tell you the power of this, when I was in private practice, I used to see a number of women who came in with classic signs of depression by the book. Further, they would admit it, corroborating evidence from friends and family partners would support that notion. Evidence that depression is a key thing. I learned 35 years ago, I had to ask a, an additional set of questions on top of what I just did. So I would say, now, Mrs. Spence, now that we have a pretty good snapshot that depression is a real thing in your life, I need to ask you some other questions. And I would ask questions about rage and anger. And likewise, when a big, strong, you know, 6'4", 225 pound guy came in with anger management, let's just say he was even court referred. And again, all the evidence is anger. I would have to say, well, Mr. Jones, I get that snapshot, but I have to ask you some additional questions. And I would go down the path of suicide and depression. See, because 95%, which is for me is code 100, I discovered the following, that when a woman is coming in as depressed, some part of that manifestation of depression and that living experience of depression is imposed upon her by society. See, that woman came in cursing like a sailor, punching her fist through walls, calling you all kind of MFs. The first thing out of everybody's mouth, including women, would be that B is crazy, totally discounting what she's feeling. And likewise for a guy, for a big, tall, 6'4", 225 guy coming in crying, feeling sad, and he's a punk, and a, a wimp, and the other P word. And so knowing that you can't express yourself and speak your truth, people often express themselves outwardly in ways that are socially approved. And so again, when I've seen women who are depressed, who may be even on medication, I never want to override somebody else's diagnostic impression and intervention, but I have given them something else to think about. So what if you weren't really depressed, but what was really driving your train was anger? And nobody has ever witnessed that. I can't tell you the number of times people have felt relieved by just hearing that because I saw them and made them visible. People can get there if they want to get to the issue, but because we've been incentivized not to say anything, been punished for saying things, there's a real cost for saying things. People are not really incentivized to do anything but keep their bags tight. And I go on record as saying, everybody has baggage. And if that's true, which is code for it is, there's only two questions ever on the table. How many pieces of luggage do you have and what's packed inside each bag, period? But people like you, people like me, all the elite athletes I've worked with, the more success they achieve by all markers, fame, fortune, money, prestige, acclaim in some way, they begin to say, well, gosh, yeah, this bad stuff happened, but do I really need to address it? I mean, if it's not broken, I keep going up and up and up. Why bother addressing this stuff? That actually is a great question. If everything seems to be working, you got a home, wife, kids, money in the bank, you know, you go on vacation. Why worry about this other stuff? And you don't have to. But the other thing that you're vulnerable to 
is that invisible tattoo of trauma erupting when you least expect it. And when that comes out, it's not going to be pretty. Well, that gets back to, you're a very prolific writer, and you put, a, uh, I think, an impactful article together called Still Waters and Hidden Tattoos. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that gets into a lot of what we've been discussing. Yeah, that, that really hits on what I'm saying. Uh, I think the data are pretty clear. When you really look at uh, what is now looked at as a classic study, 1996 to 1998, there was a uh, study by the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, in Kaiser Permanente Hospital, a well-known medical uh, enterprise. They did a study with 18,000 patients, 18,000 the largest, and it was called the ACE study. Adverse childhood experiences. And they said, without a doubt, in fact, with the data said, I, I don't want to go all the data because the, the point is this if you go in your phone book right now, blindfold it, and randomly choose a hundred people out of your phone book, the data say that 65% of those people, 65 out of 100, would have had from one to four adverse childhood experiences. Uh, before 10 years of age would not be uncommon as the first time. Well, we define an adverse. Adverse has to do, they define it with, I think, 13 different categories, but it could be abuse, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, abandonment. It could be uh, poverty. It could be dysfunctional family experiences, alcoholic parent, parent incarceration. There's about 13 different categories. Subsequent studies have added race as an official burden that really adds a dimension to this to this issue. There's no question about it. And in fact, in 2001, the Surgeon General at the time came out with a study. He used to do a national report on the mental health of America. He did that in 2000, 2001. He did a companion report, which is called Mental Health in America, Race, Culture, and Ethnicity. And he goes to great lengths to verify that race is a burden that persons of color, marginalized communities have to take and integrate into their lived experiences as they navigate the world. Would that study look like today? The study today would look identical, if not more. Because back then in 2001, we're talking, what, 18, 19 years ago, we weren't really as open and as conversant about LGBT issues about physical disabilities, about religious persecutions. All of those markers of identity play a part in who we are. With the lynching of George Floyd, lynching by me, and I use that very directly and specifically. I would agree. When you really look at the dynamics that happen, that resurrected a long-going issue. See, there are two pandemics going on now. One is coronavirus. That by itself is wreaking havoc. But then four weeks into the coronavirus, we saw this lynching by knee, and that erupted into a global observation of this phenomenon. And people really began to see and can't unsee somebody, a man taking another man's life in eight minutes and 46 seconds. The openness social media, internet, instant access to news information via cell phone. All of those things now were not there in 2001. The issues are the same. They're magnified. And I think people have a richer opportunity to see it. 
but they still are avoiding the fundamental question and issue. America's original sin is racism. When you look at the Declaration of Independence, I, for example, as an African-American, was seen as three-fifths of a man. I wasn't even a full man. Women couldn't vote. They weren't up enough to vote. So when you understand and go beyond that which they want you to know, you really begin to see that the whole system of education, of employment, of income, of mobility is race-based, structural inequities, and people fight like hell to keep it in place. What they had in the South is that you had to take, you had to answer when you went to show up to a voting booth to the clerk, county clerk, you had to ask, read a passage of the Constitution and give an interpretation before you can vote. The clerk was always white, always failed the black person so they can never vote. It was 1940s. That voter suppression is not changed. It's taken a different form. Now all of a sudden the post office is bad. Let's shut down services. Mail-in voting, ah, that's disastrous. I mean, all of that is spun based on we have to keep people in their place. Athletics seems to be a more neutral form that allows race to be broken down and allows people to to excel. And we talk specifically about your role with the NBA and understanding what the receptivity has been with players as you've approached them and put together your four-step plan. You've been at it for just about a year and a half, two years. What kind of progress have you made and what has the receptivity been? Well, Well, let me answer two questions because you've made one assertion that I don't believe at all. All right. I don't believe that sports is a neutral category. I don't. Sports and the economics of it, when you're talking about teams, whether it's basketball, football, soccer, baseball, it doesn't matter. You're really talking about billionaire owners. And their product is uh, sports, athletes, paraphernalia, all that. That dynamic and the haves and have-nots has not changed whatsoever. When you look at the NCAA and the controversies they've caused, they have hidden behind a screen that they've constructed, smoke and mirrors that were neutral. But when you really look at NCAA, when you really look at the United States Olympic Committee, The violation of those women with USA Gymnastics is just abominable. So I don't buy the initial premise. That said, I have been doing this for a couple years now. We have a big program in place. My partner, Keon Dooley, and I have really put a system in place where we have very good responses. Uh, Players can go to their own therapists, not letting anybody know. They can, in fact, access educational materials and become educated. Part of our campaign is a literacy campaign. So they have access to information, what we call our website, that has probably at this point 90 links to information about mental health and wellness. We want them to read and educate themselves. Uh, We've participated in any number of conferences, national conversations, talk shows on radios, television. NBA TV did a spot really getting the word out. So I think there's receptivity to moving forward. I think Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, Kelly Oubre, and many, many more before them who haven't come out as much. 
Ron Artest, Meta World Peace. He's now an advocate, but when he was going through his journey, that was, again, that smoke detector I talked about earlier in this conversation. People don't see it, and some people don't want to see it. So I think there's been a steady move. Other organizations are now talking about it. I'm a member of an international think tank looking at the elite, the mental and wellness of elite athletes globally. There have now been probably a half dozen position or what we call consensus statements out in the literature that talk about mental health and wellness of elite athletes. So the conversation has continued. Open rehabilitation for these athletes. Well, I think there are systems in place for that to happen, but understand the politics of this. If you were now a 20-year-old kid, Hall of Fame potential, let's say football, basketball, doesn't matter what the sport is, you are the talk of the town. Number one draft pick, got an agent who really knows what he or she is doing. Are you really going to come to somebody like me, begin to say, okay, I'm struggling with whatever issue, and really feel comfortable talking about it? Probably not. Your stock will go down immediately. Even guys who have come out, they're at a point where they really had to. They can no longer contain it because to come out sooner when there were some early teasings that this is going on, it could develop. They don't have permission to do that. So I think the source is there, but will they access it? I don't know because we talk about stigma earlier. Men aren't coming. Persons of color are really not going to come for it based on the history of their relationship with the mental health system. When you add celebrity, as another lens through which you see this. When you talk about any sport career, I don't care how good you are, it's finite. The average NFL player is four and a half, five years, period. So guys know that. Are they going to really risk the slings and arrows of sharing and speaking truth about where they are? No, they're going to pack it in, really commit themselves to their sport, risk the injuries involved, including CTE for football, knowing that they have some stuff here. Even with, again, CTE, let's just isolate that as another example. Do you know when the NFL really became clear about this is an issue? Because they've known about it. It's when people like Junior Seau and others committed suicide, specifically shooting themselves in the heart, not in the head, so they could have dissection of the brain. Because the evidence is clear at that point as wanting to maintain the economics and people have value. We're not talking about values. We're talking about value. How about coaches? What have you felt the receptivity is to coaches understanding this mental, the wellness side? of? I think coaches do understand it all too well. Uh, but I think that they are the same victim slash survivor of a system that doesn't allow them to fully express that. But the same factors that I mentioned. Uh, social stigma about mental health and wellness, being man, uh, being in a position of power, being in a position that's very, very finite. So you got to sort of get it while you can. There's incentive to keep everything packed in because you certainly don't want to model to your players that it's okay to be vulnerable because then that gives them permission to do so. So if you're telling them to gut it up and be strong and be a man, you got to do the same thing. And when you look at the evidence, there have been any number of coaches who have gone out on stress leave because they can't deal with this anymore. The coaches' empathy toward their players. Are they old school, hard-nosed? You know, they hear that, they think that's a uh, an Achilles heel for their player, and they hold that against the player. 
that therefore that again keeps that player from coming forward and expressing. There are both camps. There are those who are still old school who say tough it up and be mad. I don't care what you have going on. Stop using that as an excuse. There are those categories. There are those who are very, very on the other end. They expect, well, this kid is hurting. We really do need to address this in a meaningful way. Let's do something very concretely really get this kid positioned to take care of himself, believing that he's going to bless the team with higher caliber talent expression. So it's those two extremes, but a lot in the middle. But no, there are those camps, older schools say, because again, winning, celebrity, being on top, that's very short experience. And it's win at all costs, unfortunately. Where do you think the trends are going as it relates to mental illness with athletics? I'd like to think that the conversation has been legitimate. It's popping up in many circles, both male and female sports, in both uh, professional, Olympic, high school, collegiate. Uh, there's some even uh, some conversations about youth sports, you know, indicting the parents on needing to take some control. So I think, and there's a lot of evidence that the conversation is headed in that direction. And as long as the conversation is going, people are going to, you know, be open to it. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of coming up with some concrete strategies to debunking stereotypes, to debunking the myth of um, shame. Their mental health journey is part of who they are as a person. So the old adage is that while we can't affect the direction of the wind, we can adjust the sails. So there's a lot in this world of which we have little or no control, but we can control how we respond to that. And I think we as a society have to do a better job of welcoming people with all sorts of challenges and really begin to see the added value of their struggle, not the takeaway, removal, depleted value of their experience. I think we have a long way to go. I think we're moving. I'm hopeful. I think there's a rising course domestically and globally putting forth these issues. When you look at the HBO series, which is called The Weight of Gold, it absolutely is eye-opening in terms of not only what is going on now with current Olympic athletes, but what has gone on in athletic communities at all levels for decades. And so they have not succeeded at addressing it. They've succeeded at not addressing it. And I think a lot of folks are saying times it's time to change, time to do something differently. It sounds like you're a bit bitter and angry yourself in terms of what's what you've seen unfold and uh, some of the uh, socioeconomic issues and the way things aren't being dealt with. Well, I think I, yeah, I would be remiss if if I wouldn't acknowledge that, that it is angering. You know, it's like when you were young and you want to get somebody's attention, you just want to shake them. You know, I have a passion to really get people to think differently, to really see what they see. But I've since concluded. People make choices not really in the best interest of anybody other than themselves at some point. I'm angry personally because as a black man, I live those daily realities. I have a coat and tie out now. I have you know gone through traditional trainings, all that stuff to anybody. But if I walk outside right now in my house, as I have been in COVID conditions with basketball shorts and shoes and a T-shirt and a cap, I look like any other black man on the street. And since COVID have been stopped by police 
simply because they're just checking me out. Being in a Westwood, I was to, to end this story probably not seven years ago. I was in Westwood leaving uh, an event. Westwood's a uh, suburb of LA for our listeners that may not know that. Yeah, right, right, right. UCLA was had my wife, my daughter, and one of her friends in in a car. Got pulled over by police for allegedly running uh, a stop sign. There's no way I could have because you can't run that particular stop sign the way it's angled. It's on street gaily. There's a anyway. Aside from being stopped, both officers got out with their guns drawn. One coming to the driver and one sort of slowly in the back. At that point, you know, I'm a working professional. I'm a, we weren't doing anything wrong. But the way we are approached and addressed was horrific. I say all that to say is that, yeah, I'm angry in the spirit of it. There's no way this can, should be happening. And when I look at what happened to John Lewis, God rest his soul now, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet him on a couple of occasions and actually interview him for an article that I wrote. When I see stuff like that, that sort of calms me down. I say, well, that's just part of the journey. So I'm hoping people really see my passion for speaking truth to power, for being in a position of saying what I got to say. Because nothing I've told you is anything but factual. You may not want to hear it. That doesn't mean it's not factual. But I, I can no longer collude with saying nothing. I got to say what's truth. So with that, again, I thank you for the invitation to talk and uh, hope it uh, was what you were looking for. And uh, again, it's always nice just to connect with you. We haven't talked in a while, certainly substantively. Congratulations on all the success you have enjoyed in your career. 1990 was definitely a, a dark moment. You were a, a major factor in terms of me uh, speaking to you today. I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty and your conviction. And I've always recognized your passion and your beliefs and respect uh, who you are as an individual.